heroes, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Heroes, I am back from Dreamation 2016. It was amazing, and it was particularly special to get to connect with some of you. Chatting with people who claim to be fans of my show, it really made my weekend. I also played some amazing games and had some lovely conversations, one of which you are about to enjoy. Dr. Sarah Lynn Bowman wrote her dissertation on the functions of role-playing games, and she's been editing the WeirdCon Companion Book, which is an annual collection of both academic and lay articles on LARPing, for the past five years. She publishes scholarly work on role-playing as both a psychological and social phenomenon, and perhaps most excitingly right now, she is one of the head organizers of the upcoming Living Games Conference. Living Games is like an American Knutepunkt. It's going to bring together scholars and practitioners from all corners of live-action role-playing to basically see what happens when we all get together and try to learn from each other. Yours truly will be there, presenting a panel on LARP in the media, and it's going to be an incredible confluence of intelligent, creative people using their very different experiences to advance LARP as a medium and a community. You may notice that this episode is a bit longer than usual, so make a cup of tea, take a break if you need to, and you'll see why I couldn't bear to cut a minute of it. So, Sarah Lynn Bowman, author and LARPer and academic and doer of many interesting things. It's so good to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> We're here live from Dreamation 2016, which is very exciting. Yay! Um, the first thing I want to ask you about, actually, uh, is your work as a scholar. So I know your your thesis, I think, was the book the book that you put out, The Functions of Role-Playing, correct? My dissertation, yeah. Your dissertation, yeah, yeah. I really love that. And especially because um, I've thought of you very much as like a LARPer and like a LARP person. And I think that the way that you talk about role-playing doesn't really make a strong distinction between LARP and tabletop. Can you t- can you tell me a bit more about that? I mean, obviously, there are some formal distinctions. Um, in tabletop, you don't generally act things out um, physically. But uh, what I was interested in uh, from a functionalist perspective is how do these games function in groups? And so I tried to find things that were universal to the virtual experience, to the tabletop experience, and to the LARP experience. And I sort of came up with three broad categories, um, community building and ritual uh, being one of them, problem solving and scenario uh, buildings, or so like simulations and whatnot, um, and trying to learn skills. Um, and then exploring identity, uh, and that's more the sort of psycho- psychological and psychoanalytic end of things. Yeah, that's really interesting. In terms of, because I'm, I'm interested in LARP as education, mm-hmm. and I know that you've written a lot around that. And so I wonder, when it comes to those skills of problem solving and like group deliberation, that kind of stuff, do we see strong outcomes of like, when, like, when people play role-playing games, do their skills in that area increase? Or do people who already have those skills just enjoy role-playing more? Or, like, can we really say one way or the other? That's sort of the $400 or $1,000 question or whatever the thing is. <laughs> you know, there are a lot. there's a lot of anecdotal evidence to suggest that role-playing is an amazing tool for learning. Experiential uh, learning in general and simulation has been around for a, at least since the 60s. It's pretty much been around since the dawn of time, though. We play to learn as children. And I've done some research on play pretend and the development in the childhood mind and the adolescent mind. And uh, basically what we do when we role play is play pretend for adults, which um, is not really uh, condoned by society unless it's in certain contexts. So it's 
it's condoned within business contexts and military contexts and and some educational contexts, but it's looked down upon for people who do it in their leisure time because it's not producing anything of worth to the society, supposedly. And so part of what this research is intended to do is show that the skills that we learn as leisure role players, we can actually bring into those professional spheres and that um, we can use them to, to train people um, Soft skills tend to be the the things that are the most easy to notice. Um, so leadership and teamwork, and the most important one being um, what we call intrinsic motivation, which is um, sort of a big buzzword in education. But the idea being that games make people want to do better without some sort of external validation. And of course, maybe there's some sort of reward system in the game that maybe they get more points or whatever. But a lot of times that's not the goal. The goal is to just be able to be more fully in the scenario. So for example, there's an entire school in Denmark called Osterskov After School that is taught entirely through LARP. Uh, every single lesson all year long um, is geared around a LARP experience. And it p- positions the students in the role of teachers and instructors of, in their own right and experts, um, which gives them practice in those skills. And it's very helpful for just people in general, but also for people with special needs uh, to have sort of a hands-on experience. But uh, one of the stories that I love to tell when I actually visited there, uh, I was talking to the headmaster and he was talking about this student that had like, and I might be getting the details wrong, but he came in with these maps of mining from like the 15th century in Denmark or something like that. And he's like, oh, I found out where the ore is or whatever the, the, the mineral was. And it's like, what kid goes and does that sort of research? And that's intrinsic motivation and action. And you just yeah. hear stories of it over and over again. There's actually a group called Reacting to the Past here in the U.S. That's a history group. They don't call what they do LARP per se, but it's... Yeah, so do lots of LARPers. Yeah. <laughs> and they, the, the, the guy who's sort of in charge of that wrote an article called uh, Setting Students' Minds on Fire. Mm-hmm. And I really like that that notion. And that's really sort of that, that um, excitement that people get when they play. Now, the extent to which we can measure that is very difficult. And LARP means so many things. I mean, sometimes people call edgy LARP a pretending to be a prisoner and experiencing what that's like. And that's more of an empathy gaining experience Mm -hmm. rather than I'm learning a skill per se, right? Um, So it kind of depends on how you define it. But I did some research on Seekers Unlimited uh, who were doing a science curriculum. And um, we did see uh, at least some some suggestion that there were increases in intrinsic motivation and that they were all all the kids were universally very excited about LARP and wanted to try it again so at the very least there's interest there yeah well I I read your review of the excellent literature on edularp in one of the weirdcon companions and it's interesting in terms of measuring results because you look at that LARP middle school in uh, that's a Danish school right yes and it's like the kids seem to do well when they go on to high school they're you know, their their performance on standardized tests is comparable to other schools, if not slightly better in some uh, subjects. But it seems like the actual benefits that people are trying to report and trying to talk about, and maybe it's harder to report it in an academic way because there's not like a lot of quantitative stuff, is 
individual outcomes for individual students that are quite powerful and quite transformative. Yes. And, you know, in any given game, you might be learning many different skills, which is one of the things. It's not It's not like sitting in a classroom and I am now receiving this information, which is sort of a, a one-way channel, and it's one sort of activity that you're doing. You're engaging maybe in some diplomacy, maybe you're doing some rhetoric, maybe you're also learning some things, maybe you're re- recalling information. Um, it kind of depends on the scenario. Maybe you're doing some math. Um, so there's a, lo- a little bit of a lot of things. And what grabs the student's attention is different from person to person. And certainly after in- interviewing them a semester afterwards, what they remember, too, about the experience wouldn't be the same necessarily as if I had you know, interviewed them after every single exercise. So, so it's muddy. Uh, one of the things that people like to do are post-game results uh, from journaling and things like that. And that way you can get sort of the the firsthand experience. But it's very difficult to use those as assessment tools per se. Um, So the quantitative stuff we're still working out. I would love to, I've been working with a researcher, Ann Standiford uh, at Texas State, and we're looking into studying uh, empathy and how it can be, you know, tools to to improve it in simulation and doing a a probably quantitative and qualitative study there. Um, But, you know, these are things that take many years to (laughs) to do, um, which is one of the reasons why it's really easy to write a paper anecdotally about how great EduLARP is, but it's harder to get that that hard data. And, you know, fortunately, there there is some funding for that sort of stuff. So hopefully we can look forward to that. Yeah, that's very exciting. And, you know, something that I noticed, particularly in reading this, this one article, the one I was talking about earlier, is how much of it just confirmed these sort of intuitive feelings that people had about experiences that they had in LARP, that something about them had changed or that this fun that they were having was more than fun or it wasn't even fun, but they just liked it or it was good or there was something happening that I think people struggle to kind of articulate when they talk about really like strong, powerful LARP experiences. Yeah. And the word fun itself is problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly for the reasons you're talking about, like, you know, playing prison, the LARP is not a fun experience, but it is a very instructive experience. It, It kind of shows you what human nature is like under pressure for the reader or listeners. Um, prison's a game where you basically uh, are all pretty much going to die except for a few people and you're as prisoners you're being told uh, that you have to pick who dies next um, right. in and, turns <laughs> and, it, and it takes place in like a world war one pow situation not like a contemporary prison i i can't remember um i had a really intense experience but um it, it there's also some class strata stuff that goes on with it um but it's a Russian game, actually, that was uh, oh. translated. And apparently, I, somebody mentioned it's it's been running since 2002. So this, this game has had a long wow. history. Um, but anyway, that, that for some people, I know some people, that was their first LARP. Wow. And I'm like, you kept coming back. And they're like, oh, yeah, it was great. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, so, so that's not what we would normally classify as fun. But let's say, you know, a ball for LARP where you get to be the hero or whatnot. That's fun. But there's, there's more to it than that. There's learning about yourself. There's learning skills that you didn't know that you had. Like, well, in, this, in my day job, maybe I don't have to ever take a leadership position. But in this LARP, all of a sudden, I'm, you know, the, the mayor. And that puts me in this, you know, I have to, you know, struggle to, to do that. But then I realize, oh, wow, I can actually uh, perform in this capacity. And 
for a lot of people, they gain a lot of personal agency from that. And they gain a lot of um, sense of esteem and self-efficacy is what mm-hmm. we call it in, in education. Uh, the feeling that you can do things well, which a lot of uh, success, I mean, as an educator, one of my big goals is to just encourage people and let them know that they can do things and to help them build confidence. And um, I've been experimenting with EduLARP in my classroom, uh, my humanities classroom, and a lot of the scenarios are not probably not what most people would consider fun. It's like a grant proposal um, or a, a graduate seminar where you're trying to impress some professors. And I'm like, maybe I'm just writing my life. I don't know. <laughs> Autobiographical LARPs can be, you know, can be rich and rewarding. But but the goal, but the goal being that um, these are maybe skills that they may have to use later in life. Um, you know, at some point they may have to do a proposal, a presentation, they may be really nervous, they may have to work in a group. And, you know, this gives them some practice, some sort of low stakes practice. Everyone I know who's who's into like education and education research is all about this idea of low risk opportunities for failure. If you put someone in a situation where if they fail, horrible things are going to happen, then they won't try or they won't you know, or they'll just be caught up in that. They won't do their best. They won't learn from it, whatever. As where giving people the opportunity to fuck it up a bunch of times means that they get to learn to do it very well. So I wonder if maybe that that is exactly just the gift that you're giving your students with a LARP like that is like, here's an opportunity to do well or to not, and it'll be fine. And to to deliver the information, because there's a, Humanities has a lot of information, to deliver it in a way that maybe is less boring than just, you know, a free writing exercise or whatever, um, that maybe has a little bit of narrative framework, maybe a little bit of alibi. Some of them have very thin characters. One of the things in EduLARP is that not everybody is a great role player. So um, some people just seem to have a more of a strong tendency to be able to immerse into character than others. So adding a lot of character stuff may actually be distracting from the learning process. So having a thin role, though, can uh, be a little bit easier for people to grasp oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Going back to the giving people opportunities to fail, um, that's certainly uh, the case. And, you know, I've read articles about students that, you know, preteens that are having to be on anxiety medications because they're so freaked out by these assessments that they have to take. And you wonder why people are dropping out of school at record rates or dropping out of, you know, college. um, And then they have less mountains of debt and all of this stuff that, you know, is heaped on their shoulders. Um, Why not have a little bit of quote unquote fun, however you define that in the classroom. And my goal is just to get that excitement for learning you know, to happen. And it's the same for scholarship. You know, I mentor some people um, from all around the world, you know, whoever basically comes to me is like, I would like to publish a paper. I'm like, all right, let's work on it. And the goal with that is, I, I know so many people in higher education that have been shut down because they're studying, you know, pretend play, or they're studying right. something that's not legitimate. Um, and, you know, my goal, and this is why we are running the Living Games Conference again, um, Shoshana Kessock started it in 2014, and we're doing it again in Austin, Texas, is to kind of bring all those people together um, and say, these are your people, <laughs> you know, yes, there are people who think what you're doing is valuable, and this is where you should go, one of the places that you should go to, to, to talk to them and to share ideas, insights. Well, there are probably lots of people operating in isolation who are thinking, oh, you know, I'd really like to mix my 
counseling psychology degree or whatever with with LARPing, but I, you know, there's probably not anyone else in the world doing that. When if you bring them all to one place to live in games, there's probably you know at least maybe maybe there's half a dozen, but maybe there's someone else you can talk to about that and share resources and share something. Yeah, and we have an EduLARP um, mini conference that right before the start of it at Texas State, and um, you know we got really a great turnout for that there's two tracks and so there's at least four people on each track so like yeah therapeutic applications and business applications and simulation and we're getting to run it at a simulation lab uh, at texas state university so they'll actually be able to see like the sim dolls and all of that stuff um, which is just a fun playground and i'm also consulting with them to help with their psychiatric simulations um, we're working on a conflict de-escalation mod kind of thing uh, to kind of give people some experience with, well, how do you deal with somebody who's having a manic episode um, in psychiatric nursing? You know, how do you, how, what is your body posture like? You know, these kinds of things that you may have, as a student, have read about or heard a lecture about, but actually viscerally having the experience is very different. So it's very cool to be partnering with them. And and yeah, I think it's going to be really exciting to have all those people sharing ideas and realizing, well, I'm not alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Someone else wants to write about this or research about this or, or figure it out. You mentioned medical simulations, and that's one of those things that it doesn't get called LARPing, but is really, really LARPing. Yes. And I feel like there are so many of these things, yes. like so many things that people are not recognizing as LARPing. Like, people in law school do simulations all the time or role plays i guess psychodrama yeah yeah tell our listeners about more about psychodrama um i'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination but a lot of it has to do with either playing out other people in your life that you are trying to empathize with or or playing out your own uh, history and replaying it and uh, working with those emotions and or learning new skills. So sometimes it'll be used in prisons, for example, to help rehabilitate people um, by like, okay, well, let's let's look at, you know, developing empathy or developing better communication skills or whatnot. But it seems to be a deep human impulse to learn through behavior rather than just passively receiving information. And, you know, we do it instinctively. Animals do it instinctively, too. I mean, you know, chase play is really common in um, at least, you know, mammalian species. And the skills that you may need to have in a survival situation uh, or in order to attain s- success in a s- society, those things tend to be things that people play with when they're children. Some of them are darker than others, <laughs> like playing war or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, and some of them certainly are socially constructed roles, but people mimicking what they see around them, for example. But that impulse seems to be part of us. Um, so this is just an adult application of that. No, that's a really that's an interesting way to come at it. We've talked a, a bunch about LARP as education and LARP as a way to learn, but I feel like your expertise lies more in the transformative power of LARP and in LARP as ritual. You, you've written a bunch about that Danish LARP, uh, just a little lovin'. It, originally Norwegian, uh, it has been many. I, well, I played it in Denmark. Um, it's going to be in France now, all in French, which is interesting. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. I mean, just a little lovin' is rituals within rituals within rituals but can you can you talk about that in terms of your personal experience either with that or with so many other LARPs that have been personal transformative experiences sure um just a little leaven uh is a LARP about the AIDS crisis in the 80s and about these subcultures gay subcultures lesbian subcultures and 
uh, hippie cancer survivors, all kind of in the same little community. And um, there's a lot of, you know, sex and relationships and friendships that occur from that. And then it plays out three years of time, including the funerals of the people that die uh, from contracting it. And it's an extremely powerful experience. And the article that I wrote talks about the ways in which um, the designers consciously used different rituals throughout the game to, in order to draw people deeper into certain aspects uh, that, that to explore, and that there's spaces in the game that are specifically designed for that. So I got to play the Tantra guru, uh, and I had there was a, literally a Tantra room. I was like, this is great. So I got to run workshops, and that was in my character description. You must want run at least workshop one workshop, and I was like, great. So I just winged it and did some like guided meditation stuff. And it was it was pretty PG compared to the rest of the game. In <laughs> retrospect, I was being a little gentle. I maybe could have gone a little farther with it. But, um, you know, it was this just little bubble of reality that we were creating. And then the the dark room, which had a lot of S&M play, was next door. And we could hear the sounds from there, sort of in <laughs> one bubble, sort of intruding on another bubble. And, and you know, I'm like in this calm voice, I'm like, just don't pay attention to that. Don't let that, you know, mm-hmm. affect your chi, you know, or whatever. Um, but anyway, I, after playing that character for three days, who kind of ended up being sort of a mentor to, to other characters, which is, was my goal. I didn't want to play a super angsty game. I wanted to play a game where I was learning how to be better um, myself at handling tragedy and handling trauma because I have a lot of anxiety issues and a lot of fears. Mm-hmm. She was so peaceful in so many ways. And I've, I felt like these rituals definitely helped like create that sense of peace and that sense of community um, with these other people. And then returning to myself when we de-rolled, which is a sort of a ritual where you take off a piece of the clothing of your character and you put it in the circle was really scary, actually, to return to myself. Um, and it took several hours of readjustment to recalibrate back into me and I find that to be the case with a lot of LARPs um, just because I, I get very deeply into character and it's, it takes some, some readjustment but a lot of people I feel play games and I, this is a total generalization but certainly um, a, a lot of the early role-playing games reflect this they play games in order to play out power fantasies right and I don't think there's anything wrong with that mm-hmm. and I don't think there's anything wrong with playing out one's shadow self Um, playing out one's dark side, which is what a lot of the World of Darkness games are geared towards. I think that it's very instructive to learn about those parts of yourself in order to grow from them. But I'm very interested in how role-playing can be used as a tool to transform who you are into who you would like to be. Um, So lately, I try to play characters uh, that have some sort of facet, you know, certainly are flawed, but have some sort of facet that I would like to be better at myself. Rather than indulging maybe some of my darker impulses, maybe playing someone who is really good at, you know, meditating all the time or always has an easy answer for things. When as an academic, there's never any easy answers for things. There's always just a million answers and a million different paradigms. Um, At least for me, I try to educate myself on multiple ways of thinking. And so it was nice to have this character that has just sort of this pat new age philosophy <laughs> that she can just revert to and and faith and really having a strong sense of faith. Um, so I, I play with faith a lot in characters, um, metaphysics. Um, I'm very interested in exploring the boundaries of not just the self, but of consciousness and of reality. 
and I'm interested in how role-playing spaces can be used to create new, uh, like temporary autonomous zones, basically, mm-hmm. uh, where you can become, not only can you become whatever you want within reason, within rules, right? But you can also transform the area to have different rules of reality than we, than, than our consensual reality says. I really like Mage the Ascension, so I use a lot of the language. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so um, to me, role-playing is, has been hugely transformative. I, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine who I'd be without playing for all of these years. Yeah. Same, same. And it makes me really sad when people, uh, the other thing that I do a lot of study on is conflict and role-playing communities bleed um, bad things that can happen because it's not all sunshine and roses all the time. And there are times when people um, have community fallout or they have um, some sort of negative reaction to something that happens. And, you know, it makes me very sad when I see people who stop playing or, or feel disconnected or have um, negative reactions to their memories of, of playing. And I'm trying to figure out tools to help sort of catch those people before that happens. Um, I've been there. I, I know a lot of people have been there. So trying to sort of popularize, because I didn't make up hardly any of this language. The Nordics and other, you know, really smart indie designers have been developing this language for a long time, but it's not in wide use. So one of my goals is to kind of write some sort of popular psychology articles, if you will, that um, are intended for a larger audience that are not too steeped in academies um, and that can be easily shared and understood by people. So I've been writing on bleed and debriefing and things like post-LARP depression, which is sort of a controversial term, but like the blues is what some people like to call it. Just not feeling quite right um, or taking some time to have to recalibrate back to the self. And I feel like making space for people to openly talk about these things and giving them terminology is really helpful. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like we as a community can be very defensive uh, when it comes to talking about LARP, because we're so eager to say, like, oh, it's not what you think. It's not, oh, no, it's not weird and bad. It's it's cool and fun and great. But if we become too focused on that, we really let people down who are having a hard time, who have had a negative experience or are struggling in some way, because we need to talk about those negative things as well. Like we need to talk about like con crash or about like, you know, what happens if you, if something bad happens to you at an event and the organizers or whoever should respond doesn't respond. Or they just don't have the tools to deal with it because most of them are hobbyists. They're not professionals. They're not, you know, trained in running businesses or doing crisis management or whatever. Um, And part of it too comes from the satanic panic where there was this um, trend in the 80s and even then in the 90s, um, this fear of, you know, people getting interested in the occult or, you know, casting real magic spells and, you know, sort of this alarmist reaction from the public that there was this defensive, no, this is all just fantasy. This is not reality. It has absolutely no bearing on real life. And so alibi becomes this shield between the game and the real world, which is a useful shield. It's useful because it allows the game to be protected, but it also doesn't account for what really happens psychologically, which is some people are able to shut down and and have that be a very strong boundary, whereas others really enjoy having there be some bleed over um, from one to the other. And some of the most powerful experiences can be, and the most transformative experiences can be those ones where you've let that wall come down a little bit. You've let that experience of your character teach me, like with this Just Little Lovin' example, you know, this idea that I can actually be peaceful for three days and not in a state of anxiety. 
like that wasn't something I thought at that time I could be capable of. And it's been very difficult to replicate since. <laughs> <laughs> but but now you know that that's inside it's, you. That exists. And that mm. is a possibility for me. And for people with mental illness particularly, to yeah. find those other pockets of themselves I think is super valuable. But then those are also the people that are the most risk of having um, some sort of psychological fallout or perhaps just needing some extra support from the community. And I, and I don't mean to say that LARP is dangerous. One thing that Johanna Kolyonen says, um, who's one of our keynote speakers at Living Games, we're very excited to have her. She has done a lot of work on safety. She says, uh, LARP isn't dangerous, life is dangerous. Huh. So it's not that the LARP is hurting you, it's that we're just human beings and we can be hurt. You know, at any time, any of us could have some something happen and um, it, it could be an in-character thing. It could be just part of our the way that our brain is made up. Maybe, you know, there's certain things that can trigger you. Another one of our keynoters, Maury Brown, who's um, one of the people responsible for New World Magiscola, uh, wrote an awesome paper for the companion book on triggers in LARP and the kinds of stimuli that can be triggering and the different uh, degrees of triggering. And it's just incredibly informative and um, really kind of gets into the discourse a little bit about triggering is not being offended. Triggering is a psychological intrusion that makes it difficult to, to cope with reality. So I think it's really exciting to kind of be around in this time when there's people that are treating this stuff seriously and there uh, there's also some people who take it too far and then there's people that don't treat it with respect um, because well if I've never needed a debrief then why does anybody else that kind of mentality right. um, or or on the alternate end it upsets me to have to debrief I don't like to be forced into a situation where I have to talk about my feelings right after a game so one of the things we're trying to sort of figure out is consent and um, opting in and opting out and how to encourage environments that are make those things easier. And, and how do you give people the kind of support, access to the kind of support that, I, that they need, which mm -hmm. may be very different from person to person, right? And like what's satisfying for one person may just be, you know, tedious and unnecessary or maybe like actively unpleasant. And what is the responsibility? Um, this is something that Shoshana has published about and done, did a Nordic LARP talk about. What is the Who has the responsibility to, to deal with someone who's having a negative reaction to content in a game, for example. And she talks about, you know, the community has a responsibility, the game designer has a responsibility, the uh, individual has the responsibility, the organizer. So everybody in that chain has a responsibility, particularly the individual. So part of it is nobody can help you if you don't know how to verbalize what you're feeling thinking. So I used a safe word in a game recently, and I think it was my first time. I mean, I've, I've used the X card before, mm -hmm. um, but I actually, at College of Wizardry, I had to like cut out of a scene because it was a, I get triggered by aggressive action from people. And so it was shocking because I had the presence of mind to actually use it, but I also um, was proud of myself for actually doing it as opposed to just letting it happen, because that easily could have been the choice. It's like, this is going to be uncomfortable. This is going to incur some cost on me. People are going to think I'm not hardcore or whatever, but I know myself, and it actually is not a good idea for me to be in this scene anymore. And I still feel, even thinking about it, shame about around that, but um, mm. at least I was able to verbalize. And I worry that a lot of people particularly if they're not experienced with role-playing or they're newbies or whatnot, or they're just haven't fully figured themselves out yet. 
not that I mean we're all yeah we're figuring all ourselves road, but, out yeah, yeah but you know um aren't able to verbalize or don't know that they can and so having structures in the game that encourage that sort of behavior I think are are helpful to at least signal hey it's actually okay to talk about your feelings and it's actually okay to have an emotional response mm-hmm. um in fact that's great and if it's a negative emotional response I'm here for you I'll talk to you about it right that's an excellent point that if if safe words or cut and break or your x card or whatever those things can exist but if some kind of taboo against using them develops then they're worse than useless really absolutely and um people can oftentimes um use them uh incorrectly as well like if i know that not me but some people's mentality is i know that cut and break exist in this game so i can go and even harder because they would cut if they you know, and so it's like almost like cut chicken, right? Like, you know, who's going to cut first? Yeah, I can really trample all over this person because, oh, you know, there's some kind of like excuse. Right. Yeah. You know, they have to be part of a larger culture of safety and of care, like of care ultimately. And Trolls Peterson wrote an article about that actually in response to Just Little Eleven on Lizzie Stark's blog. And basically he said, you know, I've I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, I've I've always I've been kind of on the fence about these safety discussions. But what I realized after Just Little Eleven is it's not so much about the rules themselves; it's about the culture of safety that is built around them, that makes it safe to be able to explore these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And again, safe is relative, yes. right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not like an on-off switch, mm-hmm. um, but safer environments. Yeah, and, and a responsible approach that includes like. Because, you know, consent has to be informed consent, right? And so you have to be aware of things and able to opt out and you have to know what opting out or in means. And yeah, that's why I'm leaning more in the direction of uh, preferring games that have transparency. And it's, it's unfortunate because a lot of games operate on surprise and that's great and secrets and that makes it exciting to uncover those things. And I'm not saying that all games need to be fully transparent or that secrets are bad or any of that. But I find that a lot of the consent issues are around um, content that they didn't know that was going to be part of the game. And uh, the response to that is like, oh, well, it was a secret and that's part of the game. And, and you know, you know that this was going to be like in DR, uh, Dystopia Rising, you knew this was going to be a morally gray world. It's like, well, that could mean anything, yeah. right? <laughs> and you knew there was going to be zombies. Okay, I knew that part. Yeah, and like I if, knew... I, if, if I can't handle zombies, I know not to go to the LARP that says zombies. Right. You know? yeah. And I knew that there was going to be post-apocalyptic themes, but that's still pretty vague, right? Yeah. So one of the things that I'm actually really proud of my home community for bringing up at DR Texas is they're starting to post on Facebook what their consent limits are like for physical role play. Like people are just openly saying, I consent to physical role play of this sort, or I do not like to be hugged or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, and that was kind of a meme that was going around for a while. And, and also um, uh, talking about phobias and, and anxiety openly. I've been seeing a lot more of that. And in these and in some cases, these are like high status men that are talking about their phobias, mm-hmm. which signals that it's okay to have feelings as a man, which is fantastic. You know, it's okay. We all have our struggles and let's take care of each other. Yeah, It's easy to be triggered by things that normally most people wouldn't think would be a trigger. Yeah. And that's that's why it's like... It's not always necessarily possible for an organizer to give you complete informed consent, especially when people are bringing in their own content. Yeah. If you have a 300-person game, you can't possibly give informed consent of 
everybody who's there and everything that, you know, they're going to creatively bring. But there's ways to negotiate consent. So that's what I'm kind of interested in is how do we negotiate consent once you've already sort of opted in? Um, you know, how do we make spaces more inclusive and also just make the cost lower for people to, to get out of scenes? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's something that I'm thinking a lot about. Uh, and I'm worrying and fretting about <laughs> because I, I don't want to give off the impression that I think that we shouldn't play hard content because that's not true at all. Yeah. I think hard content produces some really powerful revelations in a lot of people. Um, I think there's ways to do it more respectfully than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the LARP community is, is leveling up a little bit in, t- in terms of talking about these things, um, particularly in terms of race and cultural appropriation and you know, um, there, there's and gender and sexuality, um, you know, which are kind of hot button topics right now. But I don't think that we should avoid dealing with content uh, that makes us uncomfortable. I think it and but I do think that not all games are, are going to work for all people. I mean, there's certain games that I know that probably aren't good for me to play. I mean, in terms of my own psyche and the way that I think and react to things, it's like, it will probably ruin my experience and their experience if I <laughs> engage in this sort of thing. So like with Dystopia Rising, for example, I don't play at the night time, really. I play, you know, maybe yeah. two hours an evening and then I go home because or to a hotel because I, I know that um, it actually won't contribute for me to be there uh, in a positive way in my in my view. So I can enjoy the parts of the game that I like, which are the social connections and also running rituals. I like to, mm-hmm. I run a drag show at the DR game. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I try to help other people. I, I'm part of this religious cult that believes that the tele, like television shows were, were prophetic and, you know, you're always uh-huh. trying to reclaim them. So, you know, I help people run their own rituals and things like that, in part because I, I believe in LARP as a ritual itself and I believe that creating rituals within rituals can get you to even deeper places or places for reflection. This is age old. I mean, plays within plays and things have been going on since at least Shakespeare, if not before. Right. I wanted to ask you about that because often when we talk about rituals, it's very limited to, although I think it's still super interesting, to opening and closing. Like we think of either the game as a ritual, which is interesting, or how we sort of enter into the game and how we exit the game and what kind of rituals can we employ. And people talk about this in tabletop as well as LARP. But your article about Just a Little Lovin', I felt got a little more deeper into that and how the LARP is a ritual and yet it can also allow for rituals that your day-to-day self would not necessarily have the opportunity to engage in. Sure. Um, I was going to bring up This Miracle by um, Lizzie Stark and Nick Fortuno, which is, plays a lot with this. Um, you know, you, you sort of do this collaborative storytelling where you create these this religion in these groups and then you create artifacts and rituals and then you role play pilgrims that are undergoing these, that, that believe in this religion and, and then go through these rituals that you've designed. And that, that's definitely like a direct application of what we're talking about. Um, because in the way we did it at my house is we split up one room was ritual room and the other room was, you know, sort of normal space. It's still a LARP, so it's still a ritual space. And, you know, we used candles and lighting and all that stuff to make it even more ritual-y. But it definitely felt very different once you transition across the threshold, as they call it in ritual theory, mm-hmm. into the to that space. Um, and then, you know, there's like a, there's like a reverence, there's like a, a weight in the room. And I think that 
that allows for even more meta reflection. Um, and even, I do believe that role playing is an altered state. I agree. And um, uh, I believe that uh, when you go into these sort of multiple levels of altered states, it becomes super interesting. Um, so let's say you're playing a shaman that's taking a psychedelic sub, you know, substance of some sort and then engaging in a ritual. And you're not actually taking that drug, but what's really interesting is that your mind behaves as if it is on drugs, which kind of makes you wonder if drugs are just an alibi to act differently, <laughs> right? Or alcohol. Like yeah. when I, it's really interesting because it's very easy for me to slip into pretending to be drunk in a mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it was maybe when I used to drink, I was just pretending in a way like it, it's There's alibi, like, right? things are always interacting. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mean, I'm just sort of, the seedling of this thought is happening as we're talking right now, but, um, you know, maybe it's like sort of multiple, multiple altered states. And, and that implies a depth, like you're getting deeper and deeper down into your own psyche. Right. Or into something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I try not to, um, to make any, uh, big claims about where these characters come from or what they are. Um, I very interested in archetypes and I don't, I can't say for sure what those mean, but I, I find them very fascinating. But like with the drag race that I run, uh, in drag race, the, the show, RuPaul's Drag Race, they're playing their sort of male, usually male gay self uh, in front of a camera, which is different necess- than, than it would be normally. Yeah. And then they play their drag character um, and there's they show that transition. Mm-hmm. And then they have to play the snatch game where they have to impersonate someone as their drag character. So it's like these levels, right? Yeah. So <laughs> when I run it, you have a player that's playing a character that's then playing a drag persona that then has to play snatch game and impersonate somebody in the city. I mean, that's just like levels upon levels of like yeah. altered states. It's, and some people are, are have an easier time with that kind of improvisation than others. But it's, to me, it's, it's just super fascinating. And again, it's a ritual. So that's another layer, another mm-hmm. frame, as we would call it in sociological theory. Can I ask you a, a really weird question? Do you think that role-playing involves stepping outside of yourself, or do you think it involves stepping inside yourself? It depends how you define self. (laughs) (laughs) And this is like a core philosophical question, right? Like, is self just our social role that we're expected when we, Althusser calls it being hailed, when society hails us and says, hey, you you're expected to perform as, as that role. And that's the way the sociologists would say is like, um, you're stepping outside of your role and your persona is what Jung would say. But there's all these, in, in my view, as somebody who's interested in psychoanalysis, there's all these layers of selfhood. Um, and um, there are parts of us that we don't even want to acknowledge as ourself, uh, like the shadow uh, or, you know, sort of unconscious impulses, um, our desire for power fantasies, for mm-hmm. example, you know, sex and, you know, violence. And why do these things keep replicating in games, particularly the violent stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, as a pacifist, I find it very hard to play games that don't include violence. I kind of have to just suck it up and deal with it. And it's not because I'm incapable of it. It's because I have a strong aversion to it. But it's part of it is because I've been in situations in these games where I've found parts of myself that I 
absolutely didn't want to know were there. And that's a frightening revelation, but it's also something that you can work with. It's like, okay, we're all capable of being yes. this. Mm-hmm. Um, some some may have tendencies towards one thing versus another, but I do have the c- capability of, of harming someone on that level, and that scares me. But um, is that me, or is that the anti-me? You know, Jung would say it's the, the unconscious you that you're defining yourself against. Right. So when I say I am a pacifist, that's my conscious mind trying to deal with this unconscious material that it's not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And then there's the archetypal reality, which is even deeper, which may or may not connect to a collective unconscious, which, you know, a lot of people are like, that's ridiculous. How yeah. is that possible? Blah, 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 blah. But if you look at religion and you look at um, culture, you'll find these uh, archetypes replicating themselves, you know, across time and space. And um, it's a, it, at the very least, it's very interesting to me why something like Lord of the Rings and fantasy and D&D has become so incredibly popular and why certain symbols are immediately recognizable, not just because we've culturally learned them, but because something just resonates. And then yeah. the hero's journey is the, you know, the go-to example for that, um, which a lot of these MMORPGs are just based around continuous hero's journeys, basically. So... Yeah, sorry to not really answer what is the self, but uh, <laughs> which which level of self? I'm definitely stepping out of my educator role. Sometimes, sometimes I play educators in games. <laughs> um, I'm definitely stepping out of perhaps my role as friend. So some some of the surface, more surface level identities. But maybe I'm actually activating a fragment. I have sort of a typology for all this stuff. Mm-hmm. A fragment of, of something that I'm really deeply interested in, like drag, for example, that doesn't normally get to be expressed. Right. And all, that may be more genuinely me than these other surface personas. I think the question is, do we have to get away from our self as in role in order to actually get closer to ourself as in real self like what what is actually true and essential to our being or what maybe, feels authentic yeah yeah what it, what is yeah i mean i guess we're talking about the soul <laughs> i mean i don't know that's one word for it i am not going to debate that <laughs> um i'm very interested in a lot of the new age concepts of past lives and of um the astral plane and you know spirits and all that i i'm not saying that i believe that no, these things are true but you know a lot of the experiences i've had in games where content comes from nowhere it's, yeah. it's not something i necessarily was even exposed to in the past like where did that come from is very fascinating to me that you know there's more to who we are than than what the ego thinks let's yes. just put it that way and i think one of the reasons that role players become very passionate about it is because they are able to express something that feels very authentic or at the very least feels very freeing from those roles that they feel confined by. And then a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of role playing because they're very invested in those roles that they, that they have or they're afraid that people will see who they really are or that they'll have to confront who they really are. And then there's people who just, you know, like to hit things with sticks, and that's totally yeah, fine that's too. <laughs> like, I'm not suggesting that every single person who role plays is having some deeply psychologically profound experience or that they have a transformation because of it. What I'm saying is the potential is there, and uh, I, I find it endlessly fascinating. Um, so I feel very lucky that I'm able to study this. Something that's interesting is 
how easy children find it to roleplay. Children will just do that automatically. Children roleplay constantly. They play house or whatever. But a lot of adults find it very difficult. And they find, in many cases, LARP more difficult than tabletop. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, besides what we've talked about in terms of that fear of confronting one aspect of the self or exposing an aspect of the self, is that why people find it so difficult to LARP? Um, it's certainly part of it. There is a transition that occurs in adolescence where one must establish their ego identity, according to Eric Erickson, mm -hmm. um, who's awesome. Uh, and the idea is that your social identity is in part defined by who you're around and what's expected of you. And that's why um, middle school and high school are such difficult periods. You have the hormonal stuff going on, but you also have this intense pressure to conform to which clique you're going to belong to, how you're going to physically self-identify. And a lot of that is chosen for you. Mm -hmm. And so he talks about how adolescents go through this moratorium period where they're trying to d discover their self. Of course, that's been criticized as being very um, privileged. You know, not everybody has the opportunity to go through a moratorium. Yeah. Uh, but... But there is certainly this this idea that that you have to have some sort of what he calls a stable sense of ego identity, and I'm putting that in quotes because it's a sense of being having a stable ego identity. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have a solid one identity, but it means that you don't feel constantly confused or uncomfortable in your social role. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll be an accountant, sure. That this feels right. I'm good with math or whatever. It may not have been the fireman you wanted to be when you were four. Right. But it's, you know, you're kind of saving the day. You're helping someone with their taxes, you know? I mean, there's all these, like, um, uh, uh, compromises that we have to make as, as, as we transition into adulthood. And the biggest one is our creativity. Um, it is either stamped out completely or it is forced to conform to certain societally preordained uh, forms, such as, you know, you mentioned theater, like that's somehow okay. Well, it hasn't always been. Um, there are plenty of actors um, that have, were treated pretty much like criminals, uh, and it's taken a, a long time for, for acting to even be considered legitimate. And, you know, things like studio art, graffiti isn't considered very, it's, it's, it's not considered a very good form uh, in terms of, you know, the fact that it's from, from the people and it's this urban thing and it's, you know, breaking the law and all of this. But that's a form of creativity that doesn't conform necessarily to, you know, uh, realism, classical realism or something yeah. like that and yeah. portraiture. All, all, the, all these kind of white standards of what good art is or what capital A art is. And, and high class, yeah. you know, things that are you, you learn at the university because that's where your, your identity continues to be refined. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what the pop culture uh, aspects, that um, uh, creative aspects that we have, they've had to fight for recognition. So I, I majored in communications, which was, you know, kind of all about that mass media, you know, and film studies and television studies, and now, um, you know, uh, new media, quote unquote, new media, um, which this podcast is, yay, yay. <laughs> um, trying to establish itself as viable and video game studies falls into that. Mm -hmm. 
And um, with the analog game studies that we're doing, it's like trying to say, hey, you know, there's also this really interesting stuff that's going on over here. And it has a structure that can be studied. It has benefits that can be studied. And it, it can, it's incredibly powerful and transformative for people. So let's roll that into all of this other great momentum that we have in validating these other cultural forms that maybe don't have that high culture stamp of approval, but are still viable. And one of the best books about this, um, but going back to your question, is Keith Johnstone's Impro. Uh, he's an improviser, and he talks about how adults are atrophied children. <laughs> like they've had their creativity atrophied, basically, right. because they haven't used it for so long. And he talks about how difficult it is to get trained actors to loosen up enough to improvise, and how he he's really cruel in it but he talks about how the education system is ruining people mm -hmm. <laughs> and as an educator that's really hard to hear but at the same time it's like even running these edularps feels a little forced because it's in this already prescribed situation yeah. right and there isn't i can't give them too much creativity because it I, it still needs to be you know hit these measurements of assessment right like oh did they learn x amount of things or did they demonstrate that they know this yeah. thing and so, you know, how do we inspire people to be creative and to open up these parts of themselves that perhaps don't get to be expressed and still have it be educational? I mean, that's one of the big questions. So um, excellent, great questions. But I think, I think this uh, being forced into adulthood implies also being forced into these social roles, which by nature are exclusive to other types of roles that you could, could be exploring. So, so something about taking on another role means abandoning the role that you chose, as where children don't have a role, so why not take on this one or that well, one? Well, you have the role of child, but it's it's allowed to be creative as a child, mm. at least in some households. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, um, it's, it's sort of expected. Oh, well, they're just, it's also condescending, right? Oh, well, they, they just don't know who they are yet, right? Mm. The interesting thing psychologically is that it's not that we fully abandon ourselves when we role play. Certainly there are moments with that are very bleed heavy or very emotional where you kind of forget who you are. And not everybody has that experience, by the way. Some people have messaged me and said, I would like to have this experience, but I never have. And I don't know how. Do you have any suggestions? And I'm like, huh. You what, know. what do you tell those people? I say, um, can I? Oh, this is so bad. The actors out there are going to be upset. Um, I kind of give them a little bit of method acting direction. I say, you know, find something that is emotionally powerful for you that, that will evoke a strong response, um, you know, your father's alcoholism or whatever it is, and bring that into the character and have it be in the forefront, um, which is <laughs> method acting is not in, in, in vogue these days because it uh, can cause when people get too deeply into character, they're basically triggering themselves constantly right. in order yeah. to produce <laughs> a, a reaction, you yeah. know. But I think in moderation, certainly you can play with those those personal things that maybe some people are also very intellectual, and so when they play, they're not they're not really feeling a lot in general. Um, they they can sort of rationalize better or abstract better. But the point that I was trying to make is that w there's always some of you still there, you know, sometimes to greater degrees than others. Mm -hmm. um, this idea, this sort of um, mazes and monsters idea that you know we're gonna completely go crazy and forget who we are and you know <laughs> the, the world is the role and all this stuff that's that's not what happens there is a a, a sort of release 
um, that occurs when you're able to abandon all of the concerns that go with that role. You know, right now I'm a conference organizer and there's a lot of concerns that I have about that. And as I'm playing this weekend, I'm noticing that role creeping back in in the middle of play. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm starting to think about those things. And I'm like, no, and I have to shove it back <laughs> out because it's like, I am not playing that right now. <laughs> like I am, you know, this cute person in this little town who's a little quirky um, <laughs> and chibos. Um, so I wouldn't say that we abandon it, but I, I think we, we shelve it or we allow it to go latent mm-hmm. in our minds and it we can access it again and use it when necessary. So, you know, a lot of people think, well, I don't want to use safe words, for example, because it breaks character, or breaks immersion or whatever. It's like, well, no, actually, you can switch in and out quite easily. And some people it might take an adjustment trying to get back out, but like uh, we can still care for one another and switch into that mode of, okay, I am now uh, a person who's involved in this community and a friend. Like, you know, you can access those shelved roles and employ them and then put them away again. It takes practice, but, but it's almost like a toggle. It's like you can turn, make something go latent, and then all of a sudden this other stuff bubbles up that you didn't even know was there. Right. I mean, is that part of the cool thing and also kind of the scary thing that happens when you reactivate that ability to change roles and to find different kinds of yourself is that it's it's like pulling one thing out of a really, really crowded shelf and then everything else falls off of the shelf. I mean, is that, I don't know, is that what we're worried about? I think it's uh, considered a transgression against the social order. The, the social order is there for a reason. Everybody needs to serve their role. Everybody needs to stay in line. The idea is that you know, kind of like the all the, all the world's a stage and we are merely players, like that's a literal thing in sociological theory. Mm-hmm. So like when I walk into, on you know, a classroom, I'm expected to perform a certain role. Whereas when I walk into a store to buy something, I'm expected to perform another role. And when people start acting outside of those, it makes other people nervous or uncomfortable. Um, and, and we don't know how to perform. And so this idea of just throwing away the person that you you are it's, it's how people see it they're like it's very frightening to outsiders and it's very frightening to new people too they're very afraid that they're not going to be able to do it well and those of us who've been playing forever still have those <laughs> those fears sometimes i do think it does take some bravery i think it takes um being willing to accept whatever comes out yeah you know and also the willingness to look at those things, I think, is, is also very useful. So instead of just saying, oh, well, that was just a game and I don't want to look at that, thinking about, well, why is it that I brought up, you know, um, racial ghettos in this hero's journey game today? And it's because I've been, I, you know, I just got back from Venice and there's a ghetto there. And there, there, it's like I can sort of see where the, the paths led to that mm-hmm. and what I'm concerned about in terms of the way people treat one another. And people other one another was coming out in this freeform space, yeah. right? Um, and then, you know, did I treat that respectfully is another question that comes yeah. in. So it takes bravery not only to employ your, your improvisation, but also to, to be able to process it when you return back to yourself, to be able to look at it and say, yeah, I totally threatened to kill someone in that game. What was that about? <laughs> Especially since I self-identify as a pacifist. Right. So that's frightening. Yeah. Um, it's like the, I, I like that idea of bravery. And also what you mentioned about roles and about the fact that no one in a LARP, generally speaking, is playing like a sort of socially prescribed role. Is that why we need to LARP in like 
convention spaces or like tiny rooms or like way in the middle of the forest because I don't know if you've ever tried to LARP in like a public park or in like a public area or something it's really hard you get interrupted a lot it doesn't work like people like from what I've heard from a lot of people who've tried to do like you know it pervasive pervasive yeah it's it's a struggle like you kind of have to design very deliberately for it and even then, it's really obvious you're doing something abnormal because um, I've like Unheroes, the game where you're playing heroes in a public space. Um, right. We've played it in a couple restaurants. And, you know, even though it's pervasive and, you know, yes, you're supposed to be at that restaurant and you're supposed to be served by that person and whatnot, it's still really obvious. It's like, oh, I just exploded a glass and everybody reacts as, oh, a glass exploded. That's obviously not normal restaurant behavior, right? Yeah. You know, and oftentimes the police will get involved. So, for example, one time we were playing a Vampire the Masquerade game and we needed to do a mass combat. So we went to a public park and uh, the police came and they're like, we, we saw that you were, th- we heard that you were throwing gang signs and it was what? rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> so they thought that those were gang signs. Oh, Somebody could not have been more wrong. <laughs> I know. It's like, no, we are pretty much the nerdiest, like non-violent <laughs> people in reality. Um, but yeah, it, so those kinds of that's part of that social space thing though right it's like parks are usually used for a certain thing and so for like amp guard for example they have to contact the the local police and let them know what they're doing and you know after a certain while that becomes normalized it still may be a little weird for people who drive by oh those are those nerds but but um it's at least okay well they're doing a sport thing you know yeah yeah amp guard is interesting I'd like to just ask you a little bit about living games because I think what you're doing is amazing. And even though it's very far away and I told myself it was too far away to go, I absolutely have to go because you're bringing a lot of people from a lot of different disciplines, both within and possibly even maybe externally to what we consider LARP. Um, And it seems like that's a pretty deliberate strategy on your part. Absolutely. And I can't take credit for it. I mean, Lizzie Stark has been very involved and, you know, um, Ashley Zadeb is, you know, financing and there's a lot of people that are, and Emily Kerboss has been very active in the programming as well. Um, Evan Turner is helping with uh, the academic end of things. So, I mean, there's a lot of us, mm-hmm. but um, it certainly, and initially uh, in planning this this iteration, there were about 30 people that were all involved in the brainstorming process. So um, from different communities. Um, so so it, it kind of almost like emerged in a way because of that. It's like you've got people from Tabletop over here, you've got people from Nordic LARP over here or whatever, and you have all these different voices. And then trying to say, okay, well, how do we fight the impulse when you talked about this in in, uh, feeling isolated as a scholar well it also is true in gaming communities Um, sometimes there's a very either a feeling of isolation from what else is going on or a feeling of um, sort of inclusivity like exclusivity I guess uh, towards other groups and so one of the things the deliberate strategies that we're doing is you know as far as making the schedule trying not to book things against one another that would have the same market necessarily you know like and instead trying to get people on panels that are doing similar kinds of things Mm -hmm. but are from different places and so there's more of a dialogue going on there so we're trying really hard not to have a panel all about one thing it's like okay let's have a panel that talks about LARP in the media for example which you're going to be on which is awesome Mm -hmm. Um, but then I you know so it's like let's have a podcaster and let's have a video person who does YouTube videos and let's have 
you know, um, people who have um, managed social media sites and like lots of different facets of that. We're going to be showing uh, the Treasure Trapped documentary as part of the like lead in, which is a really excellent as far as LARP documentaries go. And there's a lot of them yeah. out there that are of mixed, you know, uh-huh. quality. Not not any pro- uh, fault of the documentarians, but just not very uh, much of a scope. Right. And Treasure yeah. Trap has more scope um, than most LARP documentaries have because it, it shows UK LARP, but it also shows Nordic LARP in lots of different facets. So, you know, the idea is to extend an open invitation to various communities that don't normally mix. So primary base of our volunteers come from, uh, particularly in Austin, come from the DR community and come from the Planetfall community. And we have a little freeform group um, that, you know, those kind of mix. Um, but we also want to make sure we have, uh, you know, amp guarders there. And we want to make sure that we have, you know, uh, Mind's Eye Society people there. And, um, you know, there's some groups that I'm sure we're missing, but we're trying our best to to at least have a representative. And that's also reflected in the keynotes. We tried to be as, um, to, to reserve spots for people that, you um, that we want to hear from their communities. So we have like an intercon spot and we have, you know, Nordic LARP, you know, people are doing cool immersive things in Nordic LARP spot. And the idea here is to to get people all sharing what they're doing and to uh, not promote any one style as being the style. And actually, I love that it's a LARP conference because I think we, we need more of that, but I, I would really like it to be um, even a tabletop conference as well. Um, right. So, I mean, we've tried to definitely make overtures uh, to tabletop people, and we have a panel on that as well. Jason Morningstar is going to be um, talking about using uh, stealing techniques for LARP <laughs> from tabletop, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, th- you mentioned when we first started that do I see these divisions as artificial? And obviously, there are some formalist ways that you can define them as different, but it's all creativity, it's all play pretend, it's all simulation or whatever you want to call it. And it doesn't help us to be isolated from one another, um, or to believe that our one style is better than another. Or is, for me, if people are, are engaging in imagination, if they are awakening to themselves, to whatever aspects of themselves that, you know, they may or may not have known were there, then it's a win. I don't care if they have awesome costuming, or if they're, you know, in a hotel room you know pretending to be on a spaceship like whatever it doesn't matter to me personally and you know it's a controversial topic the costuming thing because some people feel that it's very important and other people feel that it's it's wrong to put pressure on people to have to costume um, especially if they have financial you know restrictions that's a good point i was not even aware of this division uh it's a big big conflict right now um uh, and it's coming from multiple communities like Mm -hmm. amp garden uh, DR and particularly Amp Garden, uh, Mind's Eye Society, um, and then it kind of spilled over into the DR community. And you see it on LARP Haven too. That conversation comes up again and again because people are seeing footage from these "What you see is what you get" LARPs, where it's everything has to look exactly right um, from Europe, particularly. And then they're like, "Well, why can't we have this in the U.S.?" Um, or, "Well, screw those guys. They have a bunch of government money. So yeah, sure, you can look that way." Blah blah blah. Uh, so there's just this knee-jerk reaction on both sides. You know, it's like, "Well, we're never going to be respected unless we can do make a LARP look like this. Right. And going back to the documentary issue, it is a real issue because if somebody's filming and somebody's like, yeah, I'm a knight and they look like a 15 year old kid um, that's wearing a t-shirt, then it 
from an outside perspective, you don't see all that rich, wonderful stuff that's going on in his head. You see yeah. uh, somebody who's out of touch with reality, quote unquote. Right, right, right. This is where LARP as a punchline emerges because role playing is such an internal process. Yes. And so trying to document it externally, you know, like with video or with photo, just doesn't even get a fraction of it. And so, you know, then you have um, efforts like with College of Wizardry to actually bring in and the Treasure Trap documentarians actually filmed the College of Wizardry and and that became uh, viral and like probably a million people saw that trailer. I mean, it's just it got um, like, I don't know, 50 news outlets or something crazy, Fox News and all of these different places that you would not think it would reach. Um, which is why we're seeing things like New World Magiscola. Mm-hmm. And then in Austin, as a, as a parody, we have the Community College of Wizardry <laughs> that's going to be run. <laughs> and it's just all of this is sort of happening because of that, because really amazing, beautiful footage of a fandom that everybody loves was released and went viral. And that's in part what we've been needing. We've been needing to get it out of role models and these sort of representations that maybe don't look as good or um, are, are making poking fun, even if they're done well. But um, I don't like the sort of um, privileging of those kinds of games over others because they are financially prohibitive. Yeah. No, I mean, not everybody can fly to Poland and, you know, have a fancy costume and play in the wizard library. I and mean, they just can't, you know. But I like that it's, it exists so people can see it and they can go, this is possible. I could have this experience. I could have, and and what I do looks really cool. You know, like they can show it perhaps to their family and say, well, this isn't exactly what I do. But look, it looks very similar to the movies. Yeah. And it is nice when, even if it isn't the exact kind of LARP that I usually do, it's nice to know that if you say that you LARP to someone, that the image that immediately appears in their mind might be something other than, you know, a YouTube video where someone's yelling fireball. You yeah, know, that's that they get something if they if they get New World Magiscola in to pop up in their head instead. I might be talking about something completely different, but I guess I'd still rather them think of that, which is a shame, right? It's we have to talk about shame. marketability and and there's nothing wrong with Lightning Bolt. I mean, that poor guy. You yeah, know? I mean, he was super immersed in that moment. You know, yeah. good for him. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> um, but it just doesn't. It's not something that looks great. You know, and, and if you're not immersed, if you're not immersed in that particular fictional reality, too, then it really doesn't make any sense. I mean, even for fellow role players that are not playing the same game, it can be very alienating to hear about war stories from a game because it's like this is a whole bubble that I'm not involved with. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's on hallucinogens, mm-hmm. but it doesn't look fun. Right. It doesn't really, you know, it does not appear that anything is happening. And even that person describing that hallucination, probably not going to do much for you. But, you know, if you took a picture of that person hallucinating, you're not going to get a sense of what they are actually experiencing in that moment. Exactly. But it could be completely profound and transformative. Yeah, um, yeah. For them. Or horrifying or amazing or funny or whatever. Like you, yeah, you can't take a picture of it. <laughs> right. And so, and this kind of goes back to, I wrote an article about, the differences between role playing and theater and improv, just a very brief article that kind of t- scratching the surface, you know, not having this external audience is huge because you're not performing. Yeah. I mean, you perform a little bit for each other, but not always. And a lot of, a lot of what happens in role playing is, is in the mind mm-hmm. and is, um, is this sort of phenomenological experience of self 
or some sort of self, <laughs> some sort of self that's experiencing something. We, well, you know, the jury's still out on who that is or mm-hmm. what that is. And that's where a lot of the magic happens. You know, I'm sure that for actors who are immersed for long periods of time in character, they learn a lot from those experiences. But to a certain degree, they're parroting what some script has told them to do for the pleasure of other people, yeah. as opposed to drawing from their own well of creative energy. This is kind of what Johnston was trying to get into. Like the, a lot of the, the improv rituals are not meant to be viewed by an external audience. Yeah. So they're very similar to role playing. And he talks a lot about mask work and wearing masks, which you know, ties into alibi. And it's just a super fascinating book. The thing about theater is that it's a performance, you know, and a performance can be evaluated. And I mm. can't, as much as I think we have so much to learn from theater people and vice versa, I just can't stand the idea of someone who's LARPing or doing any kind of role playing, feeling like they're being evaluated on it. I agree completely. And yet we do evaluate each other in nerd culture all the time. And it's something that I worry a lot about. Uh, boundary control, uh, boundary policing, you know, somebody is doing it right. Oh, well, they got their costuming correct, whereas this person did not, or this person um, got the rules right or did not, or this game is LARP, but this one is not. And so that's sort of the dark side about having, you know, these really visually very pretty games that we can point to that that are very cool in these awesome settings. It makes some other people feel inferior and feel like they have to justify what they do. And there was a lot of resistance to Nordic LARP for a long time, in part because of that, because sort of this defensiveness of, well, what, what I do is awesome too. You know, just because I don't have the money to do what you're doing doesn't mean that it's not valuable. And I agree completely. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be learning about what these crazy people over there are doing, which is so cool. I mean, it's so different in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And even to call it it as a singular doesn't really Yeah, encompass. don't get me started on Nordic LARP. <laughs> yeah. And there are so many different sort of experiments and things that are happening in the U.S. that we don't even know about. And that's one of the things I really want at Living Games is just to for people to see the diversity that we have here um, and to realize that, you know, or maybe get inspired by what someone else is doing and be like, oh, you can actually do that? That's great. You yeah. Know? Some people said that we're not ready for a freeform, full Nordic-style t- LARP in the U.S., like New World Magic School is going to be. Yeah. And boom, it, it sold out in yeah. two minutes. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I think we are ready. Um, And I think that we don't give ourselves enough credit by assuming that we can only play a game if it has like a 200-page rule book, (laughs) you know, or if it has combat. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with those things. Some people love that style of play, and that's great. But like, I think that, you know, this is a really clear example where you know, Americans are benefiting from learning about Nordic art. And, and it's uh, College of Wizardry is both Nordic and Polish. So I want to make sure to give them credit, right. obviously. But it's based around those principles mm-hmm. of, you know, low rules, low to no rules and mechanics and immersion into the environment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a real meeting of minds. And I can't wait to see what the freeformers learn from the AmpGuard people and what yeah. the AmpGuard people learn from the Mind's Eye people. And I think Texas is a really interesting choice of a place for it because, you know, I'm pretty connected to the sort of East Coast <laughs> scene. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's a word for it. But the more that I meet people from California who are LARPing, I'm like, whoa, or, or do, and doing tabletop stuff as well. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's actually really different. That's cool. And so I love the idea of it being in Texas because it's just like everybody... 
you know, like there's no, it doesn't belong to either coast and yes. it's a little bit su- more Southern. And that know. was definitely one of the uh, reasoning behind doing it in Austin. We didn't want it to compete with stuff that's already happening on either coast. We also didn't want it to um, just be an extension of communities that already exist. Right. We wanted it to be a space where nobody had necessarily, I mean, obviously we have our Austin games. Um, so those people have their vested interests. Yeah, their right? turf. Their turf. But there's a lot of people that are going to be at this conference that don't play those games. So it's not like it's going to be 90% Austinites and then 10% other people. I mean, it's going to definitely be people from all over. I mean, we've got probably around, um, I'm going to say, 10 Nordics coming in, which is really exciting. We have a Russian person coming in, um, Russian girl, uh, a woman who is a scholar and is doing some really awesome work with orphans and is going to run a game about being in space. And like, you know, I mean, yeah. just really, really cool. Um, <laughs> and I'm really excited to see that we have kind of a diversity of different kinds of games because unlike the Nordic Convention, uh, we did want to make sure there's plenty of opportunities to play. The Nordic Convention has like festival and these other sort of kind of like Dreamation um, mm-hmm. festivals that people play at and then they analyze and discuss and collaborate at the, the Nordic Convention. So the idea was to kind of fuse the the con experience because a lot of people, particularly in Central Texas, maybe have never been to a LARP con. They've maybe never been to Intercon or Weird Con or Dreamation. Yeah. They've never, th- now there is one in Houston called Alcon. It's a small con um, that runs a Cthulhu LARP every year. It's pretty awesome. But, you know, not everybody's experienced that. So we wanted to make sure that there were, you know, chances to play. It just makes me happy. I really like having all my people in the same place. And not to say that everybody's going to living games are, quote unquote, my people. But it's a sense of like, wow, I know this really awesome person from this context. And how cool would it be to see them talking to this person from this totally other context and watch that happening? And we saw a lot of that at the first living games. And it'll be even more so this time, I think. You have one of the broadest sort of role-playing palettes of anyone I know. So, I mean, we've been in freeform and and Nordic stuff. Uh, You've talked about vampire stuff. You you do Dystopia Rising on the regular. Uh, Have you ever tried Amptgard? I actually, my very first LARP quote-unquote experience was Amptgard. I was 16 years old, and all of the boys that I knew at the time were playing in Amptgard, and so I went and saw them, their fighting practice, and I used to routinely go to these fighting practices. I've been to weekend events, but I never played. I never considered myself a player because I was totally disinterested in the, you know, the combat, and, you know, I think if I had been exposed to something like SCA or something like that, I might have mm-hmm. gotten more into it because there's more other kinds of activities. The crafting yeah. and making things. And, yeah. um, um, but I know a lot of people who have been doing Ampguard their whole life, and it's shaped who they are, and it's shaped their relationships with people, and I think it's fantastic. And that's and they're very, very strong in Texas. There's like, I don't know how many chapters. I We have statistics for all this, but um, there's like double digits. I, I want to say there's like 80 chapters. I could be wrong in Texas. There's a lot. Uh, it's very strongly represented there. So I wanted to make sure that they knew that this was for them too. And then... I went into Vampire um, and played. That was the LARP that I played consistently off and on for years. Um, but I didn't have any other LARP experiences until uh, I released the book. And then it's like a whole new world. You know, everybody's like <laughs> coming at me and saying, have you heard about this? Have you heard about this? And, wow. you know, come to this con. And I had no idea these cons existed. I, you know, wow. I, I, I was totally in a, one of these in the vacuum kind of scholars that was just sort of Googling stuff and trying to figure out what was going on. And I didn't know anything about Nordic LARP and they invited me to come over. And I was just like, 
oh, you know, okay. So the kinds of psychological things I've been interested in, they've been pushing the limits of this stuff and they've been just creating language around it and they've been discussing it for a very long time and I have a lot of reading to do. (laughs) So, you know, the assumption though then becomes if if somebody comes from there uh, and starts talking about Nordic LARP that we don't enjoy other kinds of LARP, you know, that, that we're like elitist. And, and yeah. that's that's been very hard for people like um, Lizzie and me and uh, Aaron Vanek and some other individuals that, that Emily Kerboss, who have been to the Nordic Convention coming back, trying to explain to people. Um, a friend of mine wrote a really funny article about being a, a Nordsplainer versus an Amerijerk. Like, it, it talks about the discourse. Oh my God. It's so good. Um, <laughs> Google it. It's really good. Um, anyway, point is, is that it comes across as proselytizing, which is not the goal. It's just like, wow, I learned about this cool thing. I really want to tell you about it. Or did you hear that they're doing this? You know, hey, you're, and then, and then when it gets threatening is, hey, your game would be so cool if it didn't have any rules. Yeah, <laughs> and like right, yeah. whoever just poured their lifeblood into making this complex rule system is like, well, gee, thanks for negating all of my work that yeah. I've put in that. And the people who are really invested in learning those rules and, and correctly applying them feel invalidated. So there's a, you know, a danger in that. You know, I can't stop those kinds of reactions from happening. There's going to be people that that may get rubbed the wrong way by something that happens at the conference. I mean that, you know, but I've written sort of a code of conduct, but also a guidelines for suggested behavior. <laughs> and one of the things that I really would like people to do is just ex- just um, anticipate that the other person that's talking to you isn't meaning to be offensive, you know, and that doesn't mean that they, they aren't. It just means that don't don't think that somebody is talking down to you. And if they are, then try to explain to them why that, that that's hurtful in a way that's not escalating. I, I really would like to see our community get better about dealing with conflict and in a respectful, mature way, not uh, escalating, um, not name calling. And this is true for human beings across the board. But I find that... Um, things get really supercharged really fast because everybody's very sensitive and they're all protective of their little fiefdoms, Mm -hmm. you know, or their little creative worlds, which is totally understandable. But we, you know, we're all really invested in doing this thing that we all really love. And I would like us to think of us ourselves as a we rather than me and my group versus you and your group. And again, that's human nature that to, to split into to little groups and to other each other. But at least for me, the big goal with Living Games is to try to break some of those walls down, even for just a weekend and see what comes out of it. Yeah, I think it's going to be magical. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) And if not, we'll just throw a bunch of glitter on people and, you know, (laughs) make it magical. Get get the glitter cannons. (laughs) 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 Emergency. Well, thanks so much to Sarah for sitting down with me and having such a fascinating conversation. If you want to keep up with Sarah, you can go to sarahlynnbowman.com or livinggamesconference.com. I'll have links to those and to much, much more in the show notes. As many of you know, I love hearing people's thoughts on the show. So if you want to get in touch, you can send an email to backstorypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Google Plus, Backstory Podcast, or you can tweet at me at backstorycast. Oh, and if you use iTunes, please consider leaving me a rating or a review. The reviews so far have been really sweet. Backstory is part of the OneShot Podcast Network. You can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like OneShot, Campaign, Modifier, and Talking Tabletop. 
This episode in particular would not have been possible without Megan Dornbrock of our sister show, Modifier, who loaned me her recording equipment last weekend. Much obliged, Megan. The sweet tune you're hearing now is called Thinking of You by Ujiko. You can find more of their work at soundcloud.com slash Ujiko. Talk to you later, heroes. Heroes.